we recently concluded Makiting Cup, the third debatable tournament for the year. We organized it with Debaters for Lenny to encourage debaters to register to vote by having a separate break category for new voters for the upcoming election called the Bagumbayani Cup. Debate is about realizing that your voice matters. And in a democracy, a key way to make your voice heard is through the vote. Debate is not the only place where ballots matter. You can find the Open Grand Finals and the Bagumbayani Cup Finals on the tournament's Facebook page and on our YouTube page. Here's a clip of the Grand Final about the mixing of nationalism and sports. We are arguing that it is unsustainable if individuals tie nationalism with athleticism because the moment that an athlete differs from the dominant national values of a particular country, that removes them from the support coming from their fellow countrymen. It also is more prone to non-meritocratic assessments because individuals, no matter what level of skill they have, will be more likely deprioritized just because some people feel like they're not being properly represented by a person who has different values from them, which is not even relevant when it comes to sports. If you like that, go ahead and subscribe to our YouTube channel. We migrated all our previous episodes there, but in the near future, we'll be doing things that will be exclusive to YouTube. We have a great episode for you coming up. Almost everyone in the world is vaguely aware of the consequences of global warming. Environmentalists and scientists have been saying for years that we are nearing the point of no return. And yet, not only do we feel that our efforts have stagnated, you also have people doubling down and denying the gravity of the situation. Worse, some people don't even seem to care. For our next two episodes, we talk about the deniers and the apathetic. In this episode, we'll be talking about deniers specifically. We'll examine some of the popular arguments of climate change skeptics and then go beyond that by looking at the philosophy of science underpinning all of it. In order to do so, we have to occupy the mind of the climate change skeptic, so to speak. So we are going to be doing a little bit of role playing today where we think about how to argue for climate change skepticism or denial. And then we're going to hear about it in a lot of meaningful and philosophical ways. Hello everyone! Welcome to another episode of Debatable. It's just me, Kyle, for today. Nina has a sore throat, unfortunately, but she's with me here right now, actually, so maybe you'd like to hear from her. Hi everyone, I'm sorry. <laughs> so, if this is like, if you're a fan mostly of Nina, and I know that a lot of you are, this is not going to be a good time for you, but, you know, this is something that is really important to Nina and I because we really wanted to talk about the environment more and we know that a lot of the problem comes from the idea that well it's not that big a deal you know like it's getting warmer but it's not that big a deal um so that's the perspective we're trying to look at today so a couple weeks ago, obviously, the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change published its sixth report on the status of the climate and of climate science. And when it came out, we briefly talked about it in our matter loading episode. And in that report, it said that there was unequivocal evidence that climate change is real and that it's man-made. And this report isn't just made, you know, to tell people to get moving. It's not just about you know what are the facts we've collected up to this point really from our perspective 
it seems that a lot of the findings and the way that it was framed in the report was as a means of directly responding to a lot of the arguments of climate change deniers that is based on science or climate change skeptics if you're being generous to them. Because where a denier might say, you know, we're not sure how much humans have impacted the climate. What accent was that? <laughs> basically, when they say that we're not sure how much humans have impacted the climate, there are so many factors that affect the climate, those kinds of things, this all propaganda, stuff like that. The report replies, and I quote, Large-scale indicators of climate change in the atmosphere, ocean, cryosphere, and at the land surface show clear responses to human influence consistent with those expected based on model simulations and physical understanding. And the likely range of human-induced warming in the last decade relative to the 1850s to 1900s is 0.9 degrees Celsius to 1.2 degrees Celsius, whereas the change attributable to nature is negative 0.1 degrees Celsius to positive 0.1 degrees Celsius. So actually, contrary to what climate change deniers or climate change skeptics say, we know for certain that it's man-made, virtually certain that it's man-made, not strictly natural. And while natural causes have changed the climate in the last decade, the change is very, very small compared to the change caused by humans. And if you read the report, they indicate if they're highly confident or medium confident about the truth of a certain claim. But there is one claim, however, where the report didn't say that the panel was highly confident or medium confident or whatever, even that it's likely. They said that it was virtually certain that human-induced greenhouse gas emissions is the main driver of the observed changes in hot and cold extremes. The report also said that the last time global temperatures were comparable to today was 125,000 years ago. But the concentration of atmospheric carbon dioxide is higher than any time in the last 2 million years. So if you see climate change deniers or climate change skeptics saying that the earth has been this warm before, this is just part of the ebb and flow of the planet, stuff like that, they're partly correct. You know, they're partly correct in the sense that it has been this hot before. They're partly correct in the sense that there are some natural causes, but they miss the more important point, which is that the rate at which things are heating up is unprecedented because of the concentration of greenhouse gases. And that concentration is also likewise unprecedented in our natural history. Climate change is happening faster than was previously understood. And this is also something that the report says. And the likelihood that the global temperature increase can stay within the Paris Agreement goal of within 1.5 degrees Celsius is very slim. If you remember that 1.5 degrees Celsius is already a very big deal, like that is the optimistic goal that we have. But if you go to like 2 degrees Celsius as an increase, that will be disastrous for us. But the IPCC report said that reaching that goal or staying within that goal is very, very slim. Actually, they said extremely slim. So you'll see a lot of claims saying that it takes a long time for these things to happen, that's not really true. It's happening at a very, very fast rate. The Paris Agreements, which gave a time frame where you make plans to increase green technology capacities and everything will start happening like in 2030, it was already criticized for being too short. That time frame was already criticized for being too short. So actually, on the contrary, 
we should be hurrying up even more. Um, so the the previous time frame, which people said, "Oh, you're hurrying everyone up too much," we now realize we weren't hurrying people up enough. So anyway, the report had 12 chapters, and I said before it was 4,000 pages long. How can something that was like 12 chapters long reach up to more than 4,000 pages? It's because each single chapter is 200 or more pages long, and in each of them, a lot of myths peddled by skeptics are debunked, and it's worth reading even if you don't hope to finish it. Like, I know it's not. It's not feasible to just start reading a 4,000-page document and go like, "Oh, this is just like reading." <laughs> But if you just like pick it up and read, um, and sort of, if you're not a STEM kind of person, if you're just going to read it to learn, you can skip a lot of the more sciencey stuff that you might not be able to understand. Because what's important there are the findings and the level of confidence that. Scientists have about their findings. So anyway, for me, the first and most important debunking is found in chapter one, because the first chapter was about climate science in general. The report said that scientists' ability to observe the climate system has improved and expand and become more accurate. And this is cool because, to put it in context, a bit more than a decade ago, a few IPCC reports ago, the IPCC said. That the technology available couldn't predict those things with certainty, and that's the response to most common argument of the skeptics. The most common argument is that the science just isn't there yet. But these are just the common scientific arguments of skeptics. A lot of their arguments are based less on science and more on philosophy. So here's a clip from a PragerU video called "Climate Change: What Do Scientists Say." The politicians, environmentalists, and media. Global warming alarmism provides them, more than any other issue, with the things they most want. For politicians, it's money and power. For environmentalists, it's money for their organizations, and confirmation of their near religious devotion to the idea that man is a destructive force acting upon nature. And for the media, it's ideology, money. And headlines, doomsday scenarios sell. So yeah, we went really ham on this episode, and we actually looked at PragerU videos and we watched them again and again so that we'd like figure out a way to respond to them meaningfully. So, like, if if you ever tell us that we're half-assing it or we're not or we're just phoning it in, we never phone it in. We listen to a lot of PragerU videos, and that is a lot of suffering for anyone, especially. You know, people with moral sensibilities of any kind. But anyway, that was Richard Linsen. Uh, people call him Dick, so I'll just call him Dick as well. He's a scientist and a climate change skeptic. And no, I'm not. This isn't like one of those fake doctor, fake scientist type things. He's an actual legit scientist, and he had previously worked with the IPCC. But now he's saying a lot of the things that the latest report has been debunking. As we covered earlier, and what fascinates me is that despite their video being titled "What Do Scientists Say," he spends a lot of time arguing a philosophical view that we cannot trust certain what certain people tell us because they have skin in the game. They're in it for the money. They're in it for power. They're in it for 
influence, what have you. They want money, they want power, they want headlines. Therefore, let's not believe in them anyway. So the question now is, how do we determine believability? And this is like a very big deal in the philosophy of science and epistemology, which is the philosophy of knowledge. Because Dick is saying that if you want money, and talking about global warming gives you money, you therefore can't believe in them because they're biased. So first of all, to be fair, he doesn't only talk about environmentalists, politicians, and the media. He also says that there are two other groups of people, the, the scientists from the IPCC, who are actually believable. Although he says, you know, as a skeptic that it's not enough evidence, they're just exaggerating, that kind of thing. But that puts us into a little bit of a problem because why does he say that the IPCC is believable, right? Because the IPCC can only receive funding or support from the UN and other governments under the assumption that climate change is a real thing and must be investigated. So, based on this argument that we, he applied to the politicians and the media and environmentalists, using that argument, he shouldn't be afraid of also hating on the IPCC scientists. And also, maybe... He should also be hating on himself because speaking of having skin in the game, what do we do with the fact that, as revealed by The Guardian in 2016, Dick is a beneficiary of Peabody Energy, which is a coal company that gives money to skeptics and also have something to gain if governments don't regulate coal-based energy. So you can see that if the only argument is we have to believe someone if they don't have skin in the game, that's virtually impossible because everyone has something to gain in these kinds of issues that affect everyone, like issues about climate change. So even moving beyond the hypocrisy, just flat out saying that an idea should be discredited just because the person expressing that idea wants money isn't good. Because if Dick was hospitalized and needed to fundraise for the medical bills because medical expenses are overly inflated in America, would it be proper? To say, no dick, I'm not gonna give you anything because you're only saying that you're dying because you want money. And that's the point, right? They're getting it the other way around. Maybe a lot of these people are panicking not because they want money, but rather they want money because they're panicking about dying, right? So you want the money because you're dying, not the other way around. So these guys are probably calling for green technology and like these green new deals, not just because they want money but also because they think they general, generally and genuinely need action. But the biggest problem with this argument lies in what it's not saying, but is rather implying that you are justified in not listening to an idea because of who they are, which as we know, is just ad hominem, right? It's just personal attacks. It's why you see people saying, of course you would say that. You're a Democrat. Of course a Republican would say that. Eh, dilawan ka kasi. Duterte-tard kasi to eh. Instead of facing the idea head on, you say something about the other person and use it as a way to end the argument. And like we showed, if you tried hard enough, you can find that everyone has skin in any game and it allows you to pick and choose which people you want to believe in, which people you don't want to believe in. So really, it's the opposite of being rational. A lot of these skeptics go like, we have to be reasonable, we have to be rational. But they're using a lot of irrational arguments in order to support their claims which is let's pick and choose who we want to believe in based on personal characteristics, based on personal histories, rather than what they're actually saying. And to be fair, 
Okay, there are a lot of studies that you go like, hmm, these studies were funded by, you know, Big Tobacco. And of course, they're going to publish a study saying that smoking cigarettes is safer than vaping or e-cigarettes, those kinds of things. Of course, they would say that because there's a conflict of interest. But stating that there's a conflict of interest should not, you know, prevent the scrutiny of the idea itself. And that's the thing, right? You're allowed to state that you have conflicts of interest. But what you should not do is look at the conflict of interest and automatically dismiss an idea. Because a lot of the times, it is precisely because they have that conflict of interest that made them even want to do this research. Because they're so personally affected and they want to show people how and what ways they are being affected. So this is, I think, the reason why you have so many articles and a lot of scientific research about climate change it's because of this it's because they are personally affected and that doesn't necessarily mean that it's a bad thing but also you can see that they just pick and choose which scientists are reliable and which are fake so let's do better than that let's do better than PragerU which admittedly isn't that hard to do let's not talk about Dick's PragerU video let's not talk about Dick himself let's talk about Dick's ideas what does Dick believe in? And as promised, it's more philosophical than you would expect. He's saying, look, there are a lot of scientists who believe in one thing and one thing only. And for these scientists, it would be that climate change is real, climate change is man-made. Uh, but if we're being dogmatic, we could be getting something extremely wrong. And his example was eugenics. Because there was a scientific consensus on eugenics which led to a lot of atrocities happening. If you don't know, eugenics is the idea that a lot of traits like criminality or immorality could be passed down genetically. And that means that some races who share a lot of the same genes are more likely to be criminals. And that justified a lot of these conceptions about like the moral person is a white person, um, white people are generally smarter compared to black people, those kinds of things. And even worse, it ended up justifying the idea that we should not let people of these minorities um, have children, those kinds of things. We should control the population of those people, those kinds of people who we deem to be like deficient or defective, these kinds of things. So obviously, that's a really bad look. So whenever you have scientific consensus, like the consensus that we used to have for eugenics, that might be something that was very bad because you have the risk of getting it really really wrong so there are actually a few ways to deal with this argument the first is to say that dogma is not necessarily harmful to science in fact according to historian of science thomas kuhn some degree of dogma is actually necessary in order to have any progress in a scientific field so on the contrary dogma is not antithetical to science, you can argue that science requires a certain level of dogma. So for example, again, Thomas Kuhn, historian of science, noted that when a phenomenon is first discovered, there is some debate about what things can be attributed to this phenomenon or not. So say, magnetism. When it was discovered, Thomas Kuhn said that there were endless debates about what causes magnetism, what magnetism causes in turn. And these debates become so repetitive that the entire field stagnated. And that's not good because if it just stagnated, we wouldn't have had 
bullet trains. <laughs> you know, those good things that you got from magnets. Bullet trains, x-rays, you know, medical equipment, those kinds of things. And the only way to stop that was to have a certain kind of dogma that says, okay, this is what magnetism is. This is what electromagnetism is. This is what gravity is, okay? And it's only because you have this dogma that you build everything on top of that and you have this really flourishing field of science. But now you might ask, okay, that's good, but what about dogma that is harmful, like eugenics? How did we manage to move away from that? Kohn actually has an answer to that too. He says that these dogma are actually called paradigms. And usually, everything that you can observe in reality can fit neatly into a particular paradigm. So for example, for a really long time, all of our observations about the universe were actually consistent with the idea that the Earth was the center of the universe. And also, a lot of, like, actually all of our observations about the universe was consistent with the idea that the Earth was flat. And it was only until, like, the ancient Greeks measured um, the distance of shadows at the same time that that preconception was shattered. But the idea that the Earth was the center of the universe was still there. It was only when we found that Mercury did a retrograde, it freaked everyone out because that completely shattered all our preconceived notions about the nature of the Earth. Because retrograde, okay, like, astrologists talk about this all the time, like retrograde and Mercury is in retrograde or something. What happens is that instead of, like, following a simple path through the sky from night to night, what it does is it loops, it makes a little loop, and then it continues. And that freaked everyone out at the time because everyone was looking at the sky and saying that the only way for stars and different planets to move is in that straight path. Because, again, all of these things were revolving around us, around the Earth. So the fact that you had a retrograde, a loop-de-loop, -loop, that could only mean that we are moving along with it around an axis creates that loop-to-loop -loop effect. So the discovery of the retrograde caused a crisis because it only got resolved because of a scientific revolution known as heliocentrism. So eugenics being widely debunked is also a result of scientific revolution. It had a dogma which is that things like criminality, morality can be passed down, especially within a certain race, but all of that fell apart because there were lots of evidence that said those traits were results not of genetics but of interactions between the self and the environment. So the paradigm just could not accommodate these things. It could not accommodate this new data. So the paradigm shattered completely and a new paradigm took its place. One where you can account for genetic and non-genetic factors with regard to criminality and morality, whatever that means. So Dick is arguing that we should enter into a scientific revolution by opposing dogma. But this argument doesn't work unless you have evidence that no matter what, you cannot fit within the current paradigm. This is the only time when, you know, challenging that dogma might be valuable, when you have evidence that doesn't fit the paradigm. But since there isn't yet, and Dick and the skeptics don't point to any evidence that would spur a scientific crisis, 
we don't necessarily need a scientific revolution. We don't necessarily need the contrarianism that he wants to make. In fact, what we do see is the opposite. The new evidence points directly to the truth of the paradigm. So it's really just funny to me that he goes like, oh, people are exaggerating. This is just like, this is just climate change alarmism. And then like he says that as buildings are crashing down around him, places are catching on fires, stuff like that. It was actually quite hilarious, but also, if you think about it, the argument itself is also quite problematic because the consensus right now, if we're talking about eugenics, the consensus right now is against eugenics. But using Dick's very own argument, it's being used by the intellectual dark web to justify why we should revisit these old ideas that people's personalities and other characteristics are affected by race. So you have people like Richard Dawkins and, you know, people who are associated with Richard Dawkins who is an evolutionary biologist and he was one of the proponents of new atheism but Richard Dawkins right now is being criticized for reiterating a lot of racist dog whistles that are very reminiscent of the eugenics era the idea that again a lot of the things you see from people are passed down from their ancestors including personality traits including um tendencies towards violence, feeble-mindedness or dumbness, those kinds of things. A lot of them actually say that it's true that on average, black people are just dumber than white people, even though that was already debunked by scientists in the past. So actually, ironically, that argument that that, that is bringing up the same dangerous idea that Dick himself was decrying. But secondly, you can also say that that's not actually the point of scientific discussion, like philosophically speaking. The point of scientific discussion is to arrive at a certain conclusion of fact. So if you're just constantly valuing contrarians, just because you don't want dogma in your science, you're forcing the field to move ever backward, ever backward, ever like, let's go back, let's go back, let's challenge um, the debates that we've had, let's challenge everything just because um, dogma just because consensus is necessarily harmful and we've already had these discussions right about whether climate change was real whether eugenics was bad those kinds of things so why do you want to go back to it and if we do debate them again right we run into the same problem we can't trust the debate that we just had we can't trust anything because of this self-perpetuating argument that always says that contrarianism is necessarily a good thing but also it's hypocritical. This is the third level of response. If you're counting, this is the third or fourth. It's hypocritical because Dick wants contrarianism to be accepted. And if contrarianism was accepted, then it's also a consensus. And if it's also a consensus, then that would be dangerous as well. So the argument is self-defeating in nature. But at the same time, and kind of weirdly, but also interestingly, not only is it self-defeating, is also self-reinforcing and impossible to rebut. Because his argument says that the more scientists approach a consensus with more evidence, the more dangerous it gets. So this is a scientist, Dick is a scientist who says, the more evidence you have about the phenomenon being real, the more likely it is that it's wrong, which is the definition of anti-science, right? If you have more and more evidence against climate change deniers, this argument, that skeptics like Dick say that the fact that you have a consensus makes our views even more valid and even more right. Which means that 
No matter what you do, you can't rebut it. If you have evidence that climate change is real, Dick will say, Oh, that's a consensus. That's dangerous. If you don't have evidence that climate change is real, Dick will say, See, climate change is a lie. You don't have evidence. And that's what Karl Popper literally calls a pseudoscience. So what is a pseudoscience? Because you say that it's often about astrology or whatever, but I think the most important question here is what makes something scientific versus pseudoscientific. And Karl Popper says that what differentiates pseudoscience from science is falsifiability. You can find a lot of science methods in astrology. To be fair to astrologists, okay? There are a lot of, you know, parts of the scientific method that are being replicated there. Like there have been really, really old studies in astrology where people look at the positions of the stars at the time of a person's birth and looked at their characteristics later on in life and said, yeah, your star sign is correlated to certain characteristics. And at the time that they were published, it was found that those correlations were statistically significant. And, you know, even though those studies have been debunked since then, during Popper's time, it was valid, it, or it seemed to be valid. So why do people still think that astrology is pseudoscience? And Karl Popper says that it's not really about the, the statistical, you know, significance of your findings or your correlations or anything like that, but it's the possibility that it could ever be falsified. So astrology for Popper is gen generally unfalsifiable. There is no way to rebut the existence of astrology. Why? Because if being a Scorpio says that you're good in bed or like you're very matarai or you're very snobbish, right? You're snobby. Um, if you're not that, but you're still a Scorpio, what does that mean? So a scientist or someone who is practicing real, quote-unquote, real science would say that it debunks or falsifies the idea that's being given by the scientific field. But for astrologers, what they would do is they would point to some other sky phenomenon or something that interferes or say that it's just being repressed. And whatever the claim is, because of that, it's impossible to falsify and impossible to rebut. And this is also the reason why a lot of people in psychology, they really don't like Freud, right? They really don't like Freud because if you remember, what Freud is saying is that generally you have sexual feelings for your mother. Uh, so that would, that would explain why you have certain dreams about, you know, your mother's milk, those kinds of things. But if you don't have them, it's not that you don't have an Oedipus complex. What's actually happening is that you are repressing your Oedipus complex. So that's the reason why Popper and a lot of people in the psych field, a lot of people in the scientists think that Freud is a fraud, not really a fraud, but pseudoscientific is this idea that if you have a dream about having sex with your mother, that means you have Oedipus complex. But if you don't have a dream about it, it also means that you have Oedipus complex. So either way, it's impossible to rebut. And that's a problem that we see with climate change skeptics, particularly this argument that just values contrarianism above all else, uncritically. It's getting late. Maybe it's time for a bedtime story. Once upon a time, Two explorers came upon a clearing in the jungle where a lot of flowers grew. The two explorers got into an argument about whether the clearing was being tended to by a gardener. So they decided to watch and observe. 
nobody arrived to tend to the garden, not even after a long while of watching. The explorer who didn't believe that the gardener existed said, See? There is no gardener. And to this, the believer replied, The gardener might be invisible. So the two explorers set up traps for the invisible gardener. They set up an electric fence so that they could make the invisible gardener scream. They brought dogs to smell out the gardener and used infrared goggles to see if this invisible gardener had body heat. Again, nobody arrived. But despite this, the believer did not budge. Maybe the gardener is not just invisible, but also intangible and cannot feel pain with no heat and can't make a sound and also has no smell. And his friend finally gives up and starts packing. When the believer asked him why his friend didn't want to rebut him anymore, he replied, because there's nothing left to rebut. There is no difference between an invisible, intangible, eternally elusive gardener from an imaginary gardener or from no gardener at all. So that was incredibly intimate, like in a way that I wasn't expecting because it, it feels like I was whispering a lot, like I, I didn't know that I could make that kind of voice. But anyway, that was called the Parable of the Invisible Gardener and it has been used for quite a long time already. It's been used since the previous century or even before that actually where it's used traditionally to teach about the value of skepticism. And the idea here is that if you're looking at religious belief, it must sound very ridiculous to a scientific skeptic because that's basically the way religions have been operating. The idea that, you know, the, the obviously the invisible gardener was a substitute for a god or a deity that is invisible yet is omniscient and omnipresent and content to certain gardens. But... Popper used it to demonstrate how something could be unfalsifiable and thus unscientific. So the parable was actually used less to demonstrate religious thought and more as a way to demonstrate what scientific thought should be. So why did I bring this up in this episode about the philosophy of science? It's because climate deniers or climate skeptics are now entering that realm of religious belief where they just keep moving the goalposts whenever new evidence is brought up such that their claims about how everyone is exaggerating, everyone is in on it, everyone is, you know, in it for money or power. They keep moving the goalposts so that their idea becomes more and more unrebuttable, unfalsifiable. And that's the reason why it's very ironic because that parable was used to demonstrate the value of skepticism in science. And yet now, it is the skeptics who are actively going against the scientific community and encouraging people not to believe in the science or, you know, to put it more generously, to quote-unquote be skeptical of the science, to be skeptical of the mountains of evidence that are pointing to the fact that climate change is man-made, right? So this is the reason why I brought it up. Because climate scientists are saying, look, there are mountains of evidence that basically says there is no gardener. The believer just dismisses the evidence and says, well, it's dangerous to believe dogma like scientific evidence because I'm a skeptic. So you can see the believer and the skeptic's roles have been switched 
completely. And this also means, again, climate change deniers tend to feel an almost religious attachment to the idea that it's not as bad as people say it is, that people are just alarmist. And it's really funny in a tragic sort of way that they are saying this as the world catches on fire, as half of their country gets dried up because of drought, as the other half freezes, and the other half of the world is submerged underwater. So this is why we wanted to talk about it. Because it's not so much that they are denying or being skeptical of climate change because of scientific reasons, even if that's what they want you to believe. It's because of a religious philosophy that does not let them let go of this skepticism. The idea that as long as there is a consensus, we must challenge it. We must always be contrarian, even if there are mountains of evidence that say that we should not be contrarian. And that's what's so dangerous here. What is being peddled is, if you believe in us, you are a free thinker. You are not afraid to go against the grain. You're not afraid to go against what propagandists are trying to make you believe. But in doing so, they are making their own kind of propaganda that is so difficult to rebut that it might as well not be a scientific argument at all. So that's it for this week. I know like you would think that it was about like climate science or whatever, but it's actually more about philosophy because really that's where the battle lies. It's not on the science, but it's on the philosophy. Next week, we'll talk about not about how irrational climate change denial is because that's what we had, but more about apathy. Why do people feel apathetic about climate change? And our hypothesis there is that for many, it's a coping mechanism not because they don't care, but because they actually care a whole lot. If this was the philosophy episode, next week we'll talk about psychology. So that's it for this episode. I'm sorry again that Nina, we are sorry that Nina um, had sore throat. It wasn't, it really wasn't something that we accounted for, but I could, I just couldn't let Nina, you know, talk for half an hour with me um, while she's suffering. So I'm sorry, but like that is the, trade-off that I'm willing to accept. So that's it. We'll see you next week. Bye!